Uh, so friends, today what we're going to do is we're going to jump back to our series in the book of Acts. And if you've been with us for the past three weeks, then you know that we've, been, we've taken a break from the book of Acts and we've done a topical series on another topic that the Bible really cares about, and that's the topic on money, how to view it, uh, how to faithfully steward it and allocate it, okay? But today we're going to jump back in the book of Acts, and actually, you might not know this, but we're almost done with the book of Acts. We only have two more chapters to go, okay? We started in chapter one about a year and a half ago, I'm not sure, and we've preached every single verse, uh, every single passage, and now uh, we're going to come back to chapter 27 And then chapter 28, we're done. So in about three weeks, we'll be done with the whole book, which is exciting. But I do have to warn you that the last two chapters of the book have some really, really long scenes in it, okay? And you can't really break it down to smaller chunks and smaller scenes because it just wouldn't make sense that way. Um, So today, for example, our sermon will be 44 verses long. And I apologize for that. I really did try and break it down, but I just couldn't. It'd be weird. And next week, it'll feel repetitive and the story's not complete, okay? And you'll see what I mean when we read it. Um, But what is this 44 verses long passage today about? Well, it's about the Apostles Paul, famous shipwreck. You guys know that story, right? Um, Paul was in prison in Caesarea for preaching the gospel, but then in prison he appealed, like Banding, to Caesar, right? Uh, And Lo and behold, they granted it to him, which is bizarre. He gets to go to Caesar to appeal to him for his unjust imprisonment. And he was in Caesarea, and Caesar was in Rome, Italy. So he had to get there. And this is God's hand at work. That's kind of what we see here in this passage. Because four chapters ago, in Acts chapter 23, this is what God promised Paul, that eventually Paul's going to end up in, in, in Rome, preaching the gospel in Rome to, to Caesar. This is God keeping his promise. But... The only way back then to get to Rome, Italy from Caesarea is by boat. And this particular route that Paul had to take was filled with stormy weather and dangerous tides. And a big point of what we see in this passage today is this. How can we, like Paul, travel through the storms of our life well? Right? As life's Billows roll, as we sung earlier in our, in our second song. How can we pass through them in such a way that is glorifying and honoring to God? How can we pass through them in such a way that's faithful to Him and His call and His mission? Okay? So that's what we'll focus on, and I'm going to read uh, the passage first before we jump into the sermon. But since this passage is a very long one, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Instead of reading the whole passage and then preach the whole sermon, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to break it down into sections, or else we're just going to forget what the passage is about. So I'll read the first section of the passage, and then I'll preach the first point, and then I'll read the second section of the passage, then I'll read the second point, then I'll read the third section of the passage, then I'll preach the third point, okay? Uh, So the first point is verses 1 to 8, the second point in verses 9 to 38, and the third point is verses 39 to 44, which should be on the screen behind me as well. All right, so let me first read the first section of our passage, verses 1 to 8, and then we'll start with our first point. This is the Word of God. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon. 
And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, which is the side of, of the Cyprus island, because the winds were getting to us. And when he had, we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myria in Lycia, where the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmon, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Heavens, which is near, uh, which was in the city of Lasea. Thus says the Lord. All right. The first point, as we go through the storms of life, one, we must be attuned to God's presence. So, I love my kids. I promise I do. But sometimes, when I get back home and they don't see me walk in because they're playing in their little playroom or, or in the corner somewhere, what I would do is I would sneak up the stairs and I would go to my room to get just like 20 minutes to myself. I just need a breather. It's been a long day. I need a breather. Give me 20 minutes to recharge and then I'll go back down there and play with you guys and do the whole night routine, you know. But on some days, as soon as I'd sneak up to my room, I would hear these loud footsteps kind of sprint up the stairs, and then my door would slam open, and then Elena, my six-year-old daughter, would be standing there in the doorway, pointing at me, and whisper, I knew it. <laughs> I was like, how'd you know I'm home? And she'd smirk and say, because I saw the clues. She's really big on detective clues these days. I saw the clues. I'm like, what clues? She goes, well, first of all, Dad, I saw your shoes in the hallway. One clue. And your bag was under the table. Second clue. And I kind of heard you walk up the stairs real sneakily, you know. And I was right. You're home. So I'd go, well done. <laughs> and then I'd give her the iPad until I go downstairs and play the iPad. <laughs> Just joking. I would never do that. I'll tell her to watch TV. <laughs> I won't. Screens are bad, guys. Okay, the point is, my child, who knows me, can sense the clues of my presence when I'm around. And what we see here in the passage, at the first part of the story, is that similarly throughout Paul's journey, God here is kind of leaving clues of his sovereign and caring presence all around Paul as he journeyed through his storm. Okay, what, what clues? Where do we see God's sovereign presence in this passage? Well, first... By the way, God provided Paul with a way to get to Rome. This is a pretty big deal. Remember, Paul was being transferred to, uh, to Rome from Caesarea as a prisoner. But because he was a prisoner, he got a free boat ride arranged by Rome. And on top of that, because he was a prisoner, he also had protection. Look at verse 2. It says that Paul had a centurion guarding him the whole way. And this wasn't just a normal bodyguard. A centurion is a Roman military leader that was in charge of a hundred soldiers. His name was Julius, verse 2 says. And on top of that, in verse 3, it says that this Julius favored Paul. He liked Paul, so he treated him kindly. So God provided Paul not just with a free boat ride to Rome, but also with a world-class bodyguard to protect him all the way who, who was kind. But on top of that, God also gave Paul friends to accompany him through the storm. Look at verse 2 again. 
because Julius liked Paul, he allowed a guy named Aristarchus, one of Paul's friends, to, to come along. But also, there's a second friend here implied in the passage in verse 1. Look at it again carefully. Who was it? Well, it's Luke himself, the author of the book of Acts. How do you know that? Because if you take a look at verse 1, what did Luke, the author of the book Acts of Acts, say here? He said, it was decided that we should sail for Italy. We meaning that Luke was a part of this trip. So Paul had a free boat ride. He had a world-class bodyguard protecting him, and he had good friends to accompany him. But there's more. On top of all that, in the middle of their travel, we read earlier that the ship they were on had to go to a different route, right, away from Rome, and they didn't know what to do. But miraculously, verse 6 says, there was another ship that just so happened to pass by them on the ocean. You know how rare that is? A ship of Alexandria, it says, that was sailing for Italy, which is where Rome is. And these guys let Paul on board. Hey, come, come on our ship and we'll go to Italy, to Rome. It's all these things coming together. But then on top of that, we're not done yet. The ship from Alexandria was filled with food. We'll see that later in verse 38, specifically with wheat. Why? Because Alexandria, uh, near Egypt back then, was Rome's main wheat supplier. This was a cargo ship. Just all these things happening, and God is trying to affirm Paul here. Look, I'm still here. I'm still here. God gave Paul a free ride to Rome, a kind world-class bodyguard, two good friends to accompany him, and another boat when he needed it, a boat that just so happened to be filled with food. Are these all coincidences? No. The point here is that this is God's sovereign hand affirming Paul that he's keeping good with his promise. I know you're a prisoner right now. I know the winds of life is blowing your sails the opposite direction of where you want to go in life. And the waters underneath you are turbulent. I know. But just take a second and pause and look at all the ways that I'm still providing for you. Where do you think all of this came from? I'm still here. I am. I promise. Now, I want to be careful for us to not mistake this with the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, right? This is, this is not what this passage is saying. This passage is not saying that God's promising us luxuriousness as we travel through life. No, no, no. God didn't send Paul a party cruise ship with champagne and caviar. He sent Paul a cargo ship with wheat in it. That's it. And Paul was still a prisoner, and he was still surrounded by deadly water. This passage isn't saying expect luxuries from God, okay? It's saying expect sufficient clues from God to do what? To simply remind you that he's still there. And that's what exactly should comfort you. His presence, not the clues in itself. What gave my daughter Elena joy that day when she saw the clues of my presence at home wasn't the fact that those clues were useful to her. What's she going to do with a pair of shoes and a bag? It gave her joy because those clues pointed to the fact that I was home, that I'm there. 
What around you, friends, right now, is pointing to the fact that God is still there? You might be in turbulent waters. I don't know. But maybe, like Paul, is there a dear Christ-centered friend who's accompanying you in the journey? Who do you think that's from? Maybe it's the fact that you still have daily bread. You still have food for today and tomorrow. Who do you think that's from? Maybe it's a church community trying their best, although imperfectly, to, to feed you solid spiritual food every Sunday. Who do you think that's from? Maybe it's a caring spouse or loving parents that babysit your kids on their day off. By the way, thanks, Mom. <laughs> Who do you think that's from? Are those coincidences? Did they just happen to fall on your lap? Let them point you to him. See, peace, this passage is saying, isn't found in the absence of, of storms. Peace is knowing that God's right there with you. Even through the darkest parts, I'm here. I promise you I'm here. And when it gets difficult to remember that promise, maybe it's a good idea to take a second and just look around you and see all the clues around you that God has provided you with to affirm and aid your heart in knowing that he's still there. You may not have all that you want, but you do have what you need. Let that remind you that even the smallest provision comes from the Lord who controls the storm. He's still here. Second thing we see here is that not only in our storms we need to be attuned to God's presence, we also must, like Paul, actively obey his promise. Okay? Not just passively receive it, but actively obey it all throughout the storm. What do I mean? Let's go to our second point. So, as we read the next section of the story, where Paul and company finally safely landed on this harbor after going through the storms, right, in a city called Lasea, but we see there's a, there's a big problem. This harbor was, was too small, and it was run down, so it wasn't suitable enough to spend the winter in, okay? And because of that, the people in the boat argued, and, and they were talking about each other, deciding whether or not they should just stay through the winter, because there's tons of storms out there right now in these months, or should they just push through along? Okay, so we're going to read that part, verses 9 to 38, and this is the longest section that we're going to read, okay, but if you kind of picture it in your head like a movie, that might help, all right, so verses 9 to 38, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo and to the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid, no attention, uh, paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, which is bigger, a bigger harbor, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchored and sailed along Crete close to the shore in case they crash. But as soon as a temp Temptuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under, running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, 
They used support to undergird the ship. Then fearing they would run aground on Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, which is throwing it off board. And on the third day, they, knew, they threw the ship's tackle overboard, which is the big wood that the sail comes down on. They, they threw that thing uh, overboard uh, with their own hands. And when neither sun nor star appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and may not have sailed for Crete and incurred injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong, and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has guaranteed you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther, they took another sounding and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea, under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, keep these men in the boat. Unless these men stay in the, in the ship, you cannot be saved. The soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged him to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day, and you have continued in suspense, and without food, have to, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you, take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from your head, from any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then, then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all in 27, 206 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. All right, hope that was a fun movie in your head, as you imagined it. So, what happened? Well, we saw that they decided to risk it, right? They said, look, we're not going to spend winter here. We're going to risk it. Let's just push through these storms. And they got far enough. They survived a few storms until, verse 14 says, they encountered the northeaster a storm so big that it demanded its own name. And this storm was so big, it said that they couldn't see the sun or stars for days, verse 20 says. And if you know sailing, you know that's important because that's the only way back then you would know the direction. So they didn't know where they were. They didn't know where they were going for days. And as soon as all hope of save was being lost, verse 20 says, God, enter the story with a piece of good news to share through Paul. In verse 22, Paul stood up and said, Men, I urge you to take heart. Be of good cheer, literally, it means. Take heart. For the God whom I serve, because there's a bunch of people from different nations there, right? So he's saying, the God that I serve, the true God, has said that none of us will perish. Man, what a, what a promise, what a guarantee, right? But here's what's interesting which is also our next lesson about what to do in storms. After Paul received this guarantee of salvation from God, so to speak, 
right? You'll be saved. It's guaranteed. What did, what did Paul do? Did he just sit back and relax and did nothing? Not at all. He took action, right? He took responsibility toward the fulfillment of this promise. Where do we see that? Look at verses 28 to 30. God promised there will be saved in verse 22, but in verse 28 to 30, when all the sailors wanted to abandon ship, right, because they sensed land was nearby, and usually that'd be good news, but because of the storm, they couldn't control the speed of the ship, and they're scared they're going to hit the rocks around, around the island. So coming near shore in this situation isn't, isn't good news. So they panic, and all the sailors want to jump off board and, and swim away. But Paul knew that if, they left, if all the sailors left the ship, then there's going to be no one left to kind of steer the ship, and the 200-plus people that was left on the ship will die. So what did Paul do? Did he say this? You know what? Jump off the ship. Do whatever you want. Go fishing. Or sleep. It's fine. God already promised us that we're going to be saved, so I'm just going to sit back and relax and do nothing. Is that what Paul did? No. No, no, no. What did he say? He took action. He told Julius in verse 31, tell the men to stay in the ship, because if they leave, literally, I quote Paul said, we cannot be saved. They called on a second, Paul. I thought you trusted in God's sovereignty. We cannot be saved. I thought you believed in God's promises, right? I thought you were a good reformed pastor. You, we believe in God's sovereignty. I believe in God's sovereignty. Paul believed in God's sovereignty, but yet that didn't make him lazy. He's saying now that if you don't steer the boat, we cannot be saved. So are you doubting God's promise, Paul? What's going on here? No, he's not. So then why did he say that? Because Paul knew how God works. See, when life storms come, usually, I think, we find ourselves falling into two different errors. The first error is that we panic. We panic because we think it's all up to us, right? The buck stops with me. It's all up to me. Unless I can calm this storm down, unless I can micromanage every single thing happening around this, then and only then will I get out of this storm alive? Panic. That's not Christianity. That's called self-reliance. But on the other extreme, the second error that we fall into is that we develop a sense of false peace. And we think like this. You know what? At the end of the day, God's already guaranteed my salvation. He's sovereign, right? So what I do doesn't really matter. My decisions don't matter. I'm just going to sleep all day long. Whatever will happen will happen. But friends, that's not Christianity either. That's called fatalism. You ever heard that joke of the fatalist who fell down the stairs and then he got back up and he wiped his brow and he said, oh, glad that was over with. No? Okay. It's this fatalistic attitude that what's going to happen, it's going to happen, so I don't need to think or do anything or even walk down the stairs properly. Both self-reliance and fatalism is not Christianity, but yet they have the same underlying problem. What is that? They've forgotten God's presence. They've forgotten God's presence. Um, one, you become so self-reliant because you don't think God's there, and the other, you lose hope and become fatalistic because you think God's not there. You see, it's the same issue. What we see in the passage today is that Christianity is neither self-reliance nor fatalism. And Paul didn't fall into either mistake. Paul knew that God doesn't only ordain the end goal, 
but he also ordains and orchestrates the series of decisions that it takes to get there. They both matter. Let me give us an example. I never use props, but this time this might help. If I drop this pen right now on the pulpit, does that mean that God ordains that to happen? We all who believe in God's sovereignty say yes and amen, right? God has guaranteed that to happen. But this could only happen because I decided that this is a good analogy to use for the second point of the sermon. I decided that. And I happen to preach on this sermon today because seven days ago, I decided to preach on this particular passage. And I decided to preach on this particular passage seven days ago because a year and a half ago, for some reason, the leaders of this church decided to preach on the whole book of Acts. And the leaders of this church decided to preach on the whole book of Acts a year and a half ago because the elders and leaders of this church all decided that it's a good idea to preach exegetically and expositionally throughout whole books in the Bible. And the reason why I happen to minister with a bunch of people who value exegetical expositional preaching is because six and a half years ago, a guy named Jay Kyle from Redeemer, New York, decided to connect me with a group of 20 people in Jakarta who have the same convictions as me when it comes to exegetical preaching. And those 20 people, six and a half years ago, that decided to become Covenant City Church's core team, decided to become Covenant City Church's core team, and I can keep going, and I can keep going, and I can keep going, to all the decisions that have to be made for us to come finally on this climactic fated day where I drop this pen. Did God ordain that? Yes. Did God ordain all the series of decisions we all made to get here? Yes. That's what Christianity says, which we, by the way, read in point two in our statement of faith earlier the primary cause, but also uses secondary causation. So God will accomplish his end through the path of earthly cause and effects. And if our minds don't fully grasp it, that's okay. That means you're starting to get it, and we can chat more later. But whether or not we grasp it, that's what we see in our passage today. God promised Paul that on one hand, no one will perish. Not a hair is to perish from anyone's head, verse 34 says. But yet Paul still took the responsibility and acted according to God's promise. Because unless the right decisions are made, we cannot be saved. You see, they work together. And as you weather through your storms, you've got to navigate through them with these two truths in mind. No. It'll protect you from the panic of self reliance because you know God's in control, but it'll also protect you from the passivity of fatalism. God's end will be accomplished, and your decisions do still matter. Okay? Right? So let's summarize here before we go to our last point. When the billows roll, when suffering comes, okay, first, remember that God has promised in his word that he will never, ever leave his people. And when it's hard to believe that, because it's just too stormy, and then take a second to look around you, look at all the ways he's still providing for you, and find comfort in the fact that he's still there. Second, as you trust in God's promise and presence, don't let that justify your laziness or foolishness, your decisions still matter. Make decisions. Live out your life according to what he's promised. Okay? And lastly, as we enter into our last third point here, this is huge. You got to remember not only what God promised in your storms, that he will deliver you, but you got to also remember the how. How did he deliver you? 
Okay, this is important. Let's go to our last and third point. So they sailed through this big storm right in northeaster, and then they landed in verse 34, 33 to 44 in this island, and they and they survived as God promised they would. Let's read it. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish in the head of any. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all there, he broke it and began to eat. Then when they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves, we were all, uh, we were in also in a 76 person in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lighted the ship, throwing out the lead into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned it possible to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foreshore to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking the reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf, the waves kept hitting it and hitting it until the whole ship broke. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. Why? Lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So they survived. And again, God kept his promise. No one died. Not a hair was lost. Right? Everyone made it safe to the shore. But here's a really important point in this last section that I want us to notice. How? How did God do that? Why? Why were they able to make it? Look at verse 42. It said that after the ship crashed, the soldiers wanted to kill all the prisoners abroad. Why? Because they were near shore. So they're scared the prisoners were going to jump off board, swim to shore, and run away. So you know what? That uh, they escape, right? Instead of them escaping, let's just kill them now. That's what they wanted to do. But then Julius, the centurion, who liked Paul, said, What? Stop. Don't do that. Why did he say that? Because he favored Paul. And if they were going to kill all the prisoners, that would also include Paul. And he didn't want Paul in that. So verse 43 44 says, The centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim jump overboard and first make it to land and the rest on the planks. So all were brought safely on land. So for Paul's sake, he's trying to say it. For the sake of one man, the men were saved. Look, you will come across some storms in your life that is so big you'll have to make. May not be the Northeaster, you may call it something else, but it could be so big that it could blind you. It could blind you from all the clues of God's treasure. It could make you forget where you are or where you're going. You don't know anything. And in those moments, you forget everything about God's promise. What do we do? We panic, right? We fall into self-reliance or lose hope and become fatalist. Some storms are just that. Big. But he knows what's going to get us through the big ones. He knows what's going to get us through our own teachers. It's by remembering not just that God will deliver you, but how he did it. Think about this passage. 
who are criminals in this passage, escape death and survive. How? Not because of their own efforts. Not because of their own strength. They survive because of one man, Paul. Now let me ask you this, guys. Why does the Bible say, will sinners like you and I escape death and survive in the end? It's not because of our own interests. It's not because I've been good enough. It's not because my strength and my morality. Why is it? It's because one man. Who is it? Jesus. But Jesus didn't only enter into the story with us, like Paul did here with the criminals in the story. Jesus drowned in the storm of God's wrath for us so that we may not sink in it. And because he drowned, we can live. You know, the big question that surrounds this whole story, a question that you and I wouldn't have known unless you studied the historical context of the passage, is that back then, in that culture, it's widely believed that if you made it alive through a long sea travel journey, that means that the gods has counted you as worthy or righteous. That was the superstition back then. And if you didn't make it, that means the gods counted you as unruly or unrighteous. Now, of course, we don't believe that, but that's what they believe back then. And that's what would have been in the minds of the original readers as they read the story. They would have constantly been asking the question, will they make it? Are these people worthy? Are they righteous? And I think the question that we're about to ponder as we read this passage today is that at the end of our lives, when all has been said and done, will we make it? Will God count us worthy? Will God count us righteous? Will we survive? And if our answer is, yes, I will survive. Why? Because I'm a good person. Or because I'm a religious person. Or because I've done A, B, C, D, and E. Then I promise you, friends, you will sink. You will sink before the holiness of God. This passage is warning us. Do not approach God with the tiny acts of goodness we've done on this earth. You'll sink. Approach God only through the righteousness of Christ. Cover yourself in Him. That's how you go before the throne, not with the own righteousness, but with His. Then, friends, if you rely on the one man who drowns so that we may live, then you will. And also, you have the power to fight through your storms today. Why? Because now you have confidence, you see. That sinking is not an option. It's not an option. For God has already come and has sunk in your defense. The future promise is an immediate hour. That's what the gospel is. His cross in time past forbids you to think that he leave you in trouble to sing. By the prayer that we wrestle, then he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile to spirit. That's right. Father, forgive us for fearing the storm more than we fear you. How tiny 
are even the biggest northeaster compared to your might and sovereignty and power and love and upholding hand. How few, how weak, how nothing are the things which scare us today. Although we forget that, Father, when the billows roll, we want nothing to do with your promises, and we doubt them, we become cynical of them, and yet we remain patient still with your rebellious children, like the criminals in the story, want to jump off ship and abandon you. But you pursued us, not only into the boat, but into the depths of the sea itself, where you drunk the full cup of God's wrath, Jesus, when you came and became our hope. And now, clothed in your righteousness, we may live. Help us now, Father, worship you in response to this amazing gospel and this amazing promise. May you be pleased as we respond to you and ascribe to you the new glory that is yours. In Jesus' name, we thank you and we praise you. Amen.